minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. On the show today, we have partner with Bassimo Venture Partners and board director for Phantom Auto, Spy Global and Iris Automation, Tess Hatch. Tess holds degrees in aerospace engineering and aeronautics engineering from the University of Michigan and Stanford. She worked at both Boeing and SpaceX, and she was named on Forbes 30 Under 30 list for venture capital in 2020. Today, we get into a great conversation on everything from frontier technology to drone manufacturing, cleaning up space debris, and putting people on Mars. Please welcome Tess Hatch. So welcome to the show, Tess. So great to have you. Thank you for having me. Of course. I actually have been really looking forward to this, but I want to jump right in because I want to cover a lot. So starting from the beginning, I noticed that you attended the same childhood school as American astronaut Sally Ride. Did that have any influence on your early passion for space? Well, I appreciate the <laughs> diligence and the homework there, Renette. Yeah, Thank Sally you. Ride is the reason I oh, wow. started my interest in space and have now continued an entire career in it. When she was a little girl, she went to a school called Westlake. And I went to the merged all-girls school with all-boys school, Westlake with Harvard. So I went to Harvard Westlake. Uh-huh. And when I was a little girl, gosh, I must have been 13 or 14, she came back and spoke. Mm. And seeing this badass lady on stage who had been to outer space was very inspiring. And I wanted to travel myself ever since. So I started applying to NASA's astronaut program, very much underqualified. (laughs) So therefore, was not being accepted. But seeing common backgrounds and prerequisites of astronaut candidates, I started embarking down that path to further my application. I'm still getting rejected, though. Didn't work out for (laughs) Artemis. Yes, I did apply recently. Oh, really? (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) Well, there's two things. I have undergrad and a master's in AeroAstro. I used to have my private pilot's license. Oh, wow. I lost my rating. I like scuba certified. Like there's two things that I'm never going to have or not never. I shouldn't say never. I don't have right now. And I unlikely that hurts my chance. The first is I don't know Russian. Uh It might change now because for the past decade, we've been depending on the Russian Soyuz. So the Russian launch vehicle to take astronauts to and from the ISS, the international space station after the shuttle retired about 10 years ago, we depend on. So every astronaut knows both English and Russian. That may change now that we have SpaceX's Falcon 9 taking crew to and from the ISS. So so that's one. The second one is they look for astronauts with astronaut candidates with team dynamic experience of, you know, a handful of people in a confined area for an extended period of time. Like you can imagine the International Space Station is like the size of a, you know, a few cars put together. I mean, it's roomier, but like... It's the size of, you know, an apartment with, you know, seven people living in an extended period of time. So they look for people with like some marine experience or research in an igloo in Antarctica for a long period of time that they can get along. So Bessemer Partnership Table doesn't count. Okay. 
So you, you mentioned your degrees. So you have degrees in aeronautics and astronautics. Now you're a VC. So my question is, how did you navigate what are ostensibly very male-dominated fields? And if any challenges you had to overcome? I'm really grateful and fortunate for two things. One, the woman who paved the path to more easily allow me to follow in their footsteps. And second, the men who are gender blind. Mm -hmm. And maybe gender blind isn't the perfect term, but the logos of them doesn't matter where it's coming from or who it's coming from. As long as, you know, it makes sense to them, they, it doesn't matter if it's a, a male or a female. On the first point, I admire, I look up, I fangirl over woman like Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, who, gosh, when I um, worked there in between my undergrad and my graduate degrees, and she walked down that rocket aisle floor with her red sole Louis Vuittons, commanding authority. I was going to raise that up. <laughs> it was like you, Renette, by the way, walking yeah. the NYSE, ringing the bell with your pink dress and your Louis Vuittons. Oh, yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> you were channeling G Shotwell over there. But she just commands authority and respect and is so fierce. And then on the other side, women like Heidi Royson, who paved the path for female venture capitalists. And I'm really honored and delighted to call her a mentor and now a friend. Um, and I'm so grateful for these ladies making it significantly easier for me. And then I take this responsibility to help pave the path for the next generation of young women in aerospace and women in venture capital, whether it's organizations like the Brooke Owens Fellowship, where I'm a mentor. Lori Garver created a fellowship for women studying aerospace undergrad to help, you know, get them into work experience or organizations like All Race for female venture capitalists in regards to increasing the percentage of female decision makers, partners at firms. I love that. I love that you're giving back from your initial inspiration. Just trying. <laughs> okay. So how did you make the jump to Bessemer from like studying aeronautics, being at SpaceX and Boeing as I think there were internships and I think even Northrop Grumman, like, so why make that jump to Bessemer or VC? In, in Renat, I didn't even know that venture capital existed when I was working at those, when I was interning at those places or nor when um, I was an undergrad. It wasn't until I, I went back to school to get my master's in aeronautics and astronautics. So a very technical master's. And I was up here in the Bay attending school at Stanford and everything at Stanford is intertwined with this like funky word called entrepreneurship yeah. and this acronym called VC. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no clue what VC stood for. However, I saw this, I, I saw this fellowship for engineers looking to get experience in business and entrepreneurship and leadership. And I really did want to complement my technical aeronautics and astronautics master's with something businessy. And I said, okay, that looks really appealing. And I also saw that it was sponsored, funded. It was from the VC DFJ, another mm -hmm. acronym that I didn't know what it meant, but I did know that DFJ was an early investor in SpaceX where I had just been interning. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. Like these people must be smart. They must know what they're doing. I applied, was really honored to have been selected as a, a, a DFJ fellow my first year of grad school, which Heidi Raisin teaches along with Tina C. League, a professor at Stanford. And um, they explained to me what VC meant. DFJ wow. for Draper Fisher Jurvinson, three man's names who created the firm. Mm -hmm. It's now called Threshold. And um, opened my eyes to the ability to rather than be a technical engineer at a single company, I could still be an aerospace engineer, which I, I consider myself, 
but investing in a variety of companies, whether it's uh, space, which is now, you know, aerospace or mobility and autonomous vehicles, whether recently a bunch of food tech companies. So getting to learn all about supportless metal 3D printing from you and Benny that I never thought I'd learn so much about. So that's, you know, what I love about my job now. Do you think that having this technical background gives you a leg up in the world of VC? Absolutely. I think I am very unique in regards to actually being an aerospace engineer. Uh And furthermore, I mean, I think taking like a 30,000 foot view, pun intended, in the board, which is taking a 30,000 foot view of the company, I think there's three types of board members that I've seen around the table from a technical perspective of company building. There's always, you know, the company CEO voice, the CEO voice coach as an independent director. But the three, you know, types of investors around the table are either the product or technical guru or market guru, the sales and marketing guru, and then the financial guru. So, so in reverse or in that order, the product or the market guru is the person who like understands the tech, but furthermore understands all the players that are working in the space where the market is going such that our company can either follow in that headwind, sorry, follow in that tailwind or fight the headwind or push it in a different direction if, if the company so aspires. The second one, the sales and marketing guru is the person who knows all of the things I learned from you, Renette, like (laughs) uh, what are sales qualified leads and demand gen and how many AEs and SDRs and all of these acronyms that like when I'm in, I'm like taking notes with this. I I'm learning from these uh, gurus and I honestly take the most notes from the CMOs in the uh, support (laughs) meetings because that is just not a muscle that I've developed. And then the third is the financial guru, the person who maybe worked at PEIB, but knows what our S1s need to look like at what sort of metrics in order to go public. Sort of like Mary and Elliot at Bessemer, they run our growth practice. So so I fit into the first. Mm-hmm. I'm like down the fairway. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on in space. These are all the other players in space. This is where the market's going. So like I said, in sales and marketing and financial, I'm like taking notes, learning from other people. But when it does come to engineering or market, the heads turn like worse to us. And then I can actually be helpful. Okay. So, so let's go. I want to go there. Right. So what is the future of frontier technology and how is it going to impact our life? Oh my goodness. I fundamentally believe the cheesy tagline is that frontier technology will solve the societal problems that we face here. Okay. And my favorite example is this of space exploration. I fundamentally believe getting to and sustaining life elsewhere will benefit life back here. For example, MRI and CT scanning technology was actually developed from the Apollo mission. Mm. When we landed astronauts on the lunar surface, we wanted to take selfies. And that technology is being used in our hospitals, saving lives every day. And the list is endless. It's not just MRI and CT. It's um, implantable heart monitors. It's laser eye surgery. It's water purification system. It's robotics. It's 3D printing. The list is immense. I am hopeful and confident that when we go back to the moon via NASA's Artemis program and land the first woman on the lunar surface or beyond Mars and, 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 and we mine asteroids in space and pharmaceutical tests in space and manufacture in space, all of this technology will have unbeknownst at the moment, but secondary and tertiary technology that will help here on earth. Do you think it's realistic? I've seen this number thrown around a lot and I'm not sure uh, what people think, but getting 1 million humans to Mars by 2050. Is that a SpaceX uh, stat? Aspiration? I can't say. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Is it realistic? I mean, 
And, and will people like want to go? I mean, I've seen people being so opposed or frightened to even think about going to space. Would you go? Not one way. I definitely would you go round trip to space or round trip to Mars? Yes. One day to both. <laughs> But that's, yeah, but also that leads me to another question, right? Like, which we haven't answered this one, so we have to go back to it. But also it's not very accessible right now, is it? Right? It's like, like you have to apply or you have to be very wealthy. So first question, will 1 million people go to Mars by 2050? And how do we even make it accessible to the general public? Well, reverse ordering that because I don't know about your first. Yeah, but okay. right now, yes, it's billionaires taking selfies in space. Or if you're invited, if you get to be, you know, Michael Strahan yes. or um, <laughs> Wally Funk aviation pioneer Wally Funk, which I was so delighted she got to go to space. She was part of the female astronaut program that was declined a trip when she was an astronaut. So right now it's fairly cost prohibitive. I will say it's amazing Mm -hmm. what Dylan Taylor did on this last blue launch. He was part of blue's third launch. He equally contributed. He matched one for one, his price ticket to go to space with charity donations. I don't know what that price ticket is. It's uh, very close and confidential. But you can guess it's, you know, low double-digit millions, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I imagine a future where we travel to space with the frequency in which we travel in an aircraft. And just since July, Blue has launched three times. Virgin Galactic has flown once. SpaceX, which has launched four astronauts, had its first civilian commercial inspiration for. I mean, these are major steps towards that future. So to get to your first question regarding, you know, the X number of people to Mars by 2050, hey, I mean, right now we only have a handful of points. Is it linear? Is it exponential? But holy moly, this is all since March. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Since July, the second half of this year, we've had, you know, all of these steps. So uh, it'll be a really exciting time. I I think before, you know, those number of people on the Martian surface, we're going to go back to the moon via Artemis, so via NASA's, but private public Mm. partnerships with private companies. Starship is a very exciting endeavor SpaceX is working on, which is really lowering the cost per kilogram to space, but it's also creating a fully reusable launch vehicle, goes up and back X number of times. And that will be, it's, it's, it's whether it's, you know, SpaceX or Rocket Lab, which are the two most frequently launched private launch vehicles at the moment. So either Electron or Falcon 9, it's really lowering the barrier and opening space for business and creating sort of like a elevator. It's like a transportation system to and from that once that is really secure, that I think going into 2022, it is, I'm excited for, the space economy to further develop. So moving into that, right? So with commercialization of space comes concerns about commercializing space, right? So people talking about debris taking down satellites, pollution from debris that doesn't burn up upon re-entry, weaponization of space. Like how real are these concerns? And do you see startups emerging to address these concerns? Just last week, sorry, maybe the week before last, this past month, Russia, or I should clarify, I think the Russian military blew up a a tested its ability to blow up a satellite in low Earth orbit, by the way, with two Russian cosmonauts on the International Space Station. Now, this is just Mm -hmm. heartbreaking, terrifying and really sad because it causes the astronauts to need to go into the emergency abort capsule and and it, there's a recording where I'm getting goosebumps. It had to, you know, ping SpaceX saying, like, can Dragon potentially emergency abort and land us back to Earth right now? What happens with huh. this test when when the Russian military blew up the satellite is it causes this massive amount of space junk cloud that, you know, these mm-hmm. pieces are whizzing at 17,000 miles per hour. They're orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes. 
that the tiniest little, you know, thing can, this is a pen, can uh, hit the International Space Station, make a hole, and the entire vacuum is compromised. So getting to your question regarding like the risks of space and space debris, First, space is big. Like, it is really big. You've got LEO, low Earth orbit, which is 500 to 1,200 kilometers. So you can imagine, like, a, a 3D donut, like two circles, but uh-huh. the inside's hollow, obviously, because that's Earth, I guess. So there's, like, a lot of room in there. And we do have active tracking systems, whether it's physical or radio frequency spectrum, so that we don't talk over one another and bump into one another. And if we get close, you mm. know, we've got systems to tell, you know, I think Spire and Capella had a near collision. So like Capella and Spire got out of the way of one another, which was great. We need to be good Samaritans of our space. We need to work with one another. These mega constellations need to be good fiduciaries of our space. And we need to be good actors in regards to stop experimentally blowing up these satellites and causing these massive space debris clouds that aren't helpful. We also need to stop leaving leftover rocket parts in space. That's the number one contributor to Mm. space debris is, you know, fairings and second stages, which Rocket Labs Electron, we're really proud to, we're trying, we're working on recovering, reusing, and refurbishing the first stage, but the kick stage or second stage, we turn it around, burn up upon reentry to your question. Then the fairings, we, um, it burns up upon reentry too. We don't leave anything in space because the bigger the piece, the longer it takes to deorbit and burn up. Mm -hmm. So, so right now we need to work as good Samaritans. I am, you know, unfortunately worried in the future that we will have a catastrophic event. A satellite will become unusable because of this or something, something, something. And the FCC or the ITU or the FAA or some regulatory entity will need to get involved in right regulation that I, I can imagine. But there are companies working on this. There are companies that are working on better tracking, like Leo Labs down to two centimeters. Uh-huh. There are companies working on like a space dumpster to grab the CubeSat or microsatellite like deorbit and astroscale. And then there's a handful of satellites that are working on on satellite deorbiting propulsion. So when it nears its end of its life, it pushes it enough out of its orbit so that it burns up upon reentry and trashes itself. Amazing. So how do you um, respond or think about people saying that we need to be fixing Earth before we even think about going to space? <laughs> and I see you smiling. <laughs> Because I think space exploration will fix Earth. Okay. I really do think, you know, climate change. We can use satellites to better Mm -hmm. track our current weather and how it's changing in our ozone layer. And gosh, in um, grad school, I worked on a CubeSat with an ion mass spectrometer. I think that's the correct word. And it was tracking like it, as it deorbited it was tracking you know parts of the the stratosphere or not the stratosphere whatever's above the stratosphere like as it was re-entering earth i really do believe whether it's you know using space to purposefully fix something here like climate change or unknowingly like all of the examples from mri ct uh water purification mm-hmm. implantable heart monitors all of those things you know were were developed from space that are incredibly important, life-saving, and helping fix here on Earth. I feel like I just got a crash course in answering questions at a dinner party about space. <laughs> well, that means we need to get dinner and not talk about it. Again. No, no, this is awesome. Okay. I heard a fun fact about you, Renette. Oh, okay. I'm ready to hear it. You're like this ultra fit. <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking Body for? Builder. Like, Yeah. 
I don't know how this is leaked. That's really cool. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's true. So I do compete, um, but we haven't finished the podcast. So I'm going to keep going with questions about you. <laughs> you don't want this on the podcast? <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind at all. I don't mind at all, but I am starting to boil up here. Um, no. Okay. Well, that's really cool, by the way. I need to ask, you know, your tips and tricks as I'm super sore from double floor berries yesterday. Oh, double floor. Okay. It was, you know, chest, back and arms or something. And I can't feel my arms. <laughs> I feel like I need to start a Slack channel because you're about the fourth or fifth person as the year ends that want to set new year's resolutions around bodybuilding and getting fit. So I need to start a, like a group chat or something. So I'll add you. <laughs> I don't know if, um, I don't have that type of dedication and I like dessert too yeah, it much. Takes a lot. So, uh, I think my, uh, my new year's resolution will be to cheer you on. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I need all the cheering. <laughs> all right. So another question, Basima also, or you also invest in drones, right? So what excites you about drones? How does that tie into space? And like, what are, what are some cool things in the um, industry that people are doing within the drone industry? It takes on average 14 minutes for an ambulance to get to a person in need. When if we had a drone that we could dispatch and deliver an AED Mm. device or an EpiPen within minutes, saving a person's life, I um, imagine a future where drones safely and ubiquitously fly in our airspace. First to deliver us these emergency medical supplies, but then eventually like, hey, I need my late night pizza or whatever your uh, late night food of choice is. Yours can be a very keto friendly steak. (laughs) Um, I eat lots of carbs, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, this is yeah. okay. This is for offline. I cannot wait to hear your macro breakdown. So there are companies working on drone package delivery. However, drones are incredibly useful for construction, for agriculture, for energy, for transport. There's all of these industries that you throw a camera on a drone and you can get, you know, a daily CAD model or, or photo photogrammetry, photogrammetric, that word, of your construction site and mm-hmm. how things have changed from yesterday to today. Or, hey, gosh, that building's, you know, two centimeters off. Let's let's fix that before we continue. Or this is the soil moisture of a farm. Or, you know, these crops are looking like they don't have enough water. Let's water them some more. So there's really incredibly useful information that we can get from drones, Um, And Drone Deploy, which is our flagship investment in drones, is the leading drone enterprise software solution there that tells the drone where to fly over the area of interest, what to collect, and then collects it, throws it into the cloud so that an engineer somewhere else can analyze the images and receive the information. The hurdle in the drone industry at the moment, though, or the bottleneck, is the FAA prevents drones from flying mm. at night, flying above people, and flying beyond the pilot's visual line of sight. Mm, which, as you can imagine, when you're trying to deliver your late-night carbs, that uh, the drone's going to go above, you know, if I'm flying it to you, I don't know. Where, you're sitting here in Austin today. Well, if I'm in Palo Alto right now, I'm trying to fly it to, like, Velo headquarters in Campbell. Uh-huh. It's going to go, obviously, way over my line of sight. So the FAA is working on safe regulations to ensure that drones can operate, but safely in our airspace to not avoid, uh, to not hit other things. Actually very similar to our space debris conversation. Oh, amazing. Okay. So what other things would you 
tell entrepreneurs thinking about entering in the drone or space? Like what kind of advice would you give them? Entrepreneurs just in aerospace. Or yeah, or thinking about drones. I think in both space and drones, there really needs to be a strong why now. For example, I think everything that's happened in space today, because of the invention of the CubeSat, it's as a result of reversing the way we launch assets into space rather than a school bus in Geo, which is 36,000 kilometers away from the world. It's a tissue box in Leo, 500 kilometers. And all of these mega constellations, all of these tiny launch vehicles or rockets in general are a result of this invention. So everything that's happened today, space debris because of the CubeSat. Like if you're creating a space company now, what's the new technology? What's the new catalyst? What's the new momentum driver in the industry that's catalyzing you to create this company. So I'm aware with drones in regards to, you know, everything that's happening now is a result of DJI's very, you know, successful drone platform. It's a really robust, redundant, nice system. And is there new regulation that was written that will give you, you know, tailwind to the company you're creating? Or is there a new Mm -hmm. sensor that you're utilizing? Or there's a new platform, a new drone that you're utilizing? I think, you know, you need to have a very specific why now that for me, at least, it makes the most sense when it's tied with technology or with, you know, a very specific event that makes sense. I guess in general, though, taking a step back and probably a better answer to this, and, and, and not just aerospace, but in general, is falling in love with your problem, not your solution. So what I mean by that is, like, the problem is 3D printing, specifically metal. Once you 3D print a metal, you have all of these, you know, structures, the support structures underneath that, you know, takes just as much time removing the support structures than it does, you know, making your piece in the first place. And then I guess the problem before that was aerospace when your strength to weight ratio is everything and every, you know ounce you put on an aircraft or a spacecraft is like that much more expensive. You, those are your problems that, you know, we need metal 3D printed pieces for aerospace. And then it obviously expands to other markets and industries as well. And then the way that it's done right now, these support structures are just a pain in the ass. Okay. So like, then what's my solution? Enter Bello. But falling in love with the problem, not oh, I did this PhD. This is really interesting technology. Let's figure out where it fits. Like, no, falling in love with the problem that a lot of people are experiencing and then coming up with the best solution for that problem. That's awesome. Like if you look at behind some of the most successful companies, there's entrepreneurs who had had found a deep problem and wanted to solve it. So final few questions. What would you tell your 15-year-old self? Okay, this one's personal. (laughs) This is good. That work and play can be in parallel. They don't need to be in series. And what I mean by this, Uh (laughs) 15-year-old self, in high school, I did not do school and I was, you know, very social. In college, it was the reverse. I was not very social and I only did school. And it wasn't until grad school. And then I think a little bit now, depending on, you know, how busy work is, but I can do those things in parallel, like work hard, but play hard, or, you know, not even hard, balance, you know, whether it's working out, which I do enjoy as well, not to your level. I bow down and respect. Um, or, you know, watching The Bachelorette every Tuesday. I don't know if you're a fan of Michelle season, but she's down to okay. final two. I won't spoil anything for the listeners or you, but also, you know, balancing and doing both. And mm-hmm. ideally your work though is something you really enjoy. I really do enjoy my work. So I probably work way too much, but like, it's a, it's a balance. It's fun. No, that's great. And I think if you enjoy it, it doesn't feel like work. 
Exactly. Wait, can I ask you this question? What would you tell your 15-year-old self? Oh my God, that's a really deep question. Okay, I've never thought about this. Um, Nothing is as you expect and it's okay. Like I think, you know, growing up with Egyptian parents that you expected to do certain things like go to university, finish university, get married, have kids. I finished university. I went, lived in London for 10 years. Then I lived in the US for another 10 years. I got married really late. I haven't had kids. So I think it's okay, right? Like just do you and wherever life takes you. Um, yeah. Just don't fall into the trap of having to follow a certain path. Yeah. I mean, you have your own path. You did your own thing. You did you. Yeah. I think that's really important for girls or actually anyone growing up, right? Like, and I think it's a bit different maybe for generations that are coming, but mine, especially with maybe Egyptian parents, you know, first generation Australian, it wasn't like that. And you wouldn't have been happy doing the, you know, the path and you paved your own and brave and fair to you for doing so. Yeah, no, it was good. I have no regrets whatsoever. (laughs) Okay. What about advice um, to younger girls, right? So especially breaking into new industries, I think it's probably a little bit easier for women to be like engineers or astronauts, but it probably hasn't always been like that. And it's not maybe as easy in all like places of the world. So what kind of advice would you give these women or young girls trying to break into these frontier industries? I looked into the data recently in regarding male-female breakdown in STEM. Okay. And it's amazing what it is now versus even, you know, 10 years ago. It's incredibly exciting how much the diversity of these programs have already increased. I think, you know, there's two other steps that we got to work on, which is the inclusion and the equity piece. Yes. That once, you know, they get there, once you get to industry and then vertically ascend within industry, continuing the importance of including diverse perspectives or people who look different, maybe female or race or sexual orientation or age or, you know, all of the many, many important factors and layers of diversity and then making sure they're all paid the same, you know, independent of what they look like, making yeah. sure, you know, every number one or number two engineer, you know, uh, at um, the government, at least they have, you know, like one through 13 and they have these, you know, specific, like every 13 gets paid the same. Every two gets paid the same, like whatever number you are. Advice to little girls that are, I mean, not even ones that are studying STEM, but, you know, finding what you're really passionate about. I mean, Renette, maybe I can use your, um, if you don't mind, your advice to your 15-year-old self is like, really ask yourself what you want to do and then do it. And ideally, what you want to do with what you're good at and then what you get paid to do intersect. And that's magic because then you won't feel like working. You know, getting to Zoom talk with you and send emails today will be delightful. And that's what I love to do. Well, actually, we have our holiday party today, so I got to go get on my cocktail attire. Okay, I I am going to ask you this. So I feel, right, like outside of drones and space and kind of working out and uh, the bachelorette, is your other passion fashion? You asked this because (laughs) for the audience, Renette was wearing this beautiful pink dress at the New York Stock Exchange bell ringing. So I had to compliment and ask you, and by the way, yes, Louis Vuittons, honestly, no. However, here's my secret. I do a Rent the Runway subscription. So every month okay, I'll get, you, you know, four to six items. And it's the be- it's truly just one fun because I like, you know, perusing the website and picking what fun dress I want to wear that month. 
but it's also just convenient. I never have to go to the dry cleaners. And dry cleaners were expensive, at least in the Bay. Yeah. And I get to try super interesting, fun things I normally would not wear. And then, you know, all of the weddings that are coming up and the various special occasions, like I just get a fun, different closet. I also get to keep my closet very minimal. So I have like the shirt, this is, you know, this is one of mine. It's just like a short sleeves cashmere. So like I very, everything is, you know, in my closet right here, black or white or gray, maybe navy blue. So it's just the, the, the basics. But then every month the runway, I like force myself to experiment and try something out of my comfort zone. I got leather pants last time. I was a big fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm currently wearing leather pants. <laughs> How do you like them? Well, they're leggings, so they're kind of different, but yes, invest. <laughs> I love them. I'm a fan. Awesome. All right. Well, I feel like I learned a lot today. Definitely feel like I can talk much more eloquently on space and space travel and debris in space. So thanks so much for joining us today, Tess. Thank you for having me. Perfect. A huge thanks to Tess for being on the show. It was so great seeing her and exploring all the facets of these new frontiers that are evolving thanks to additive manufacturing and venture capital. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please read us and leave a review or share this with a friend. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do now so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise. Thank you.